You can speak. I can hear you. Who are you? I am the creator of a television show that gives hope and joy and inspiration to millions. Then who am I? You're the star. Was nothing real? You were real. That's what made you so good to watch. Listen to me, Truman. There's no more truth out there than there is in the world I created for you. Same lies. The same deceit. But in my world, you have nothing to fear. I know you better than you know yourself. You never had a camera in my head. You're afraid. That's why you can't leave. It's okay, Truman. I understand. I have been watching you your whole life. I was watching when you were born. I was watching when you took your first step. I watched you on your first day of school. <laughs> the episode when you lost your first tooth. You can't leave, Truman. Please, God. You belong here. You can do it. With me. Talk to me. Say something. Say something. You're live to the whole world. In case I don't see ya. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> yeah. Those of you that may not know, Truman, the character that Jim Carrey is playing, was born inside of a studio, inside of a dome created by that producer. He didn't know that it wasn't real. He grew up his entire life inside of this fake make-believe life that was scripted for him to keep him comfortable and happy and safe and perfect. 
and the world watched as his life unfolded. The Truman Show, the movie that we just watched the scene from, is a movie where Truman discovers through a sequence of events this revelation that the life that he's living isn't the real life, it isn't the true life. It might be safe, it might be comfortable, but it's not real. And he fights through multiple obstacles to end up at that door that you saw him standing at. And just as he wants to exit into the big life that's waiting for him, the real life where he's going to enter, his benevolent producer gets online and says, Truman, if you go out there, it's dangerous. If you go out there, it's not safe. If you go out there, you're going to get hurt. In here, in my world, you will be happy and comfortable and safe, and you should stay here. And the world watches with bated breath, hoping beyond hope that Truman will have the courage to step out of this fake pretend world and engage in something much bigger, though unknown and dangerous, because there is great truth to what that producer said. It is not a safe world out there, but they hope that he will have the courage to step in and be brave and not stay stuck in this crazy world that was created for him that has no real meaning. And then when he does, the world cheers. And we cheer for Truman because he was brave and strong and decided to step into the unknown instead of staying in the fake realities of the world scripted for him. This is the central theme of the book of Acts. It really is. In fact, it's really the central theme of the Scripture as a whole. But in particular, in the book of Acts, it is our journey as we get to walk in Jerusalem and walk through the uh, uh, Judea and Samaria regions, walk through Galatia with the guys, uh, travel our way all the way into Macedonia and around. What we are getting to experience and watch are men and women that are living in the lives they are trying to script for themselves, trying to write a story that will be safe and secure and happy, avoiding as much of the difficulties of reality, and then they collide with this revelation, the gospel that says, you were created for so much more. This life you're stuck in that you're so tirelessly working to try to script for your own comfort was not what you were intended for. When we were created, we were created in the Garden of Eden to know God intimately and to make God known dramatically, to image God through our life. And we were to sing the glories of God to one another through our actions and words and to all of creation while creation sung back to us. And it was a symphony of God's character, love, redemption, and, and wonder. And we bought into the lie of the enemy to pursue our own story our own divinity, eat of the fruit, know what God knows, and walk into a story we could script for ourselves. And in trying to script that story, it turned out that story did not turn out well for us. Solomon says we are like people chasing after the wind, trying to script little lives for ourselves to stay safe and comfortable. And when we collide with the gospel, there is this revelation that says, not only is God here to rescue your soul and to redeem your future in eternity, but He is here to restore your purpose your created purpose to live on this planet and to display His redemptive realities in a dark and dangerous world. And when the men and women of the book of Acts collided with this truth, we have the privilege to walk with them watching the fruit of this kind of life, exiting the door of safety into the unknown to put be part of God's story instead of their own story. We get to watch not only the fruit of this, but also the consequence. We get to see the reality 
of that life, that it is difficult and it is not uneventful. It is full of difficult moments, uh, costly moments, moments of suffering because we are carrying light into what? Darkness. We are carrying life into what? Death. And we are carrying freedom into what? Bondage. And so it is messy and it is dangerous and it is difficult. And we get to walk with these guys and see how it plays out. Being invited ourselves into that world to live out our stories on behalf of God to make his story great. Abandoning what we've been trying to script. We've been following a guy that fits this story perfectly. His name is Paul. You remember Paul was adamantly against the story of God and all for the dome, right? He was protecting the dome that humanity had scripted with all his heart persecuting Christians and he collides with Jesus on the road to Damascus and through the revelation of Christ utterly changed and transformed recognizing the extremely adventurous and wondrous story that God has for him. He engages in that story over a number of years and we've been following Paul And now we are with Paul. Uh, We've left with him into Galatia again. He travels with Silas. They get to Galatia. They end up in Lystra. They pick up Timothy there. They travel the 400 miles west from Galatia over to uh, Troas by the Aegean Sea. It's a 400-mile journey. In Troas, they hang out there. They collect Luke there, the author of the book of Acts. So now the author of the very book we're reading is with Paul and Silas and Timothy. From Troas, they take the day trip across the Aegean Sea. Uh, to Neapolis, and from Neapolis, a quick little journey up into Philippi. We have traveled with them into Philippi the last few weeks. We've been lingering in Philippi, and we've watched the miracles of God occur there and the consequences of carrying light into darkness. Philippi is a Roman colony in Macedonia. Uh, It is a place where primarily the veterans of the great war of 42 BC, the unifying war of Rome, had occurred. This is now a generation later, so some of them are really... uh, 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 advanced in years, and their, their children and grandchildren live in the city of Philippi. This city uh, is a city where Roman blood runs deep, you understand? Uh, in this city, Rome matters more than anything else, and they are loyal to Rome because they fought for Rome. And so in this city, the one thing you do not do is you do not speak against Rome. That is, you do not dare say a word in this city against Rome. Paul and Silas Uh, go out with Timothy and Luke about a mile and a half outside the city by a river. They meet some woman there. Uh, During a prayer meeting, they share the gospel. The woman, several of them come to Jesus, particularly Lydia. She is a very well-known businesswoman in the city of Philippi. She comes to know God, collides with the truth, lays down her story for God's story. Her resources, her home, her reputation laid down, and the birth of the Philippian church occurs in her home. And this is going to become a central church in the New Testament story, a beautiful story. We watch that miracle occur. Paul and Silas are buzzing around the city in the days following, and they're preaching the gospel. There is a woman who is possessed by a spirit of divination, the power to see into the future. And she is a slave to some men, and they use her to make lots of money telling people's fortunes. Paul gets irritated with a spirit and casts the spirit out of the woman. The men realize their lucrative investment in the slave girl has now been lost, and they go straight to the powers in Philippi. They're mad at Paul and Silas, and instead of telling the powers that Paul and Silas stole their lucrative business, 
what they tell them is this. These guys are preaching a message of sedition in our city. It is against Rome. It is about some crazy dude named Jesus, and they are trouble. The magistrate acts swiftly. Why? Because in Philippi, you act swiftly against sedition. Why? Because if you don't, then Rome sends the bigger boys down, and your leadership is compromised. And so they immediately convict these guys without a trial. They say, beat them. The enti- half the city that's in the square beats them, not like, Tick, tick, tink, tink. No, no, they beat them with rods. They kick them. They're bleeding. They've probably got fractured ribs and, and all sorts of other things. Then they strip them of their clothes and they drag them into the inner prison, the dungeon, where the most heinous criminals are held until their trial, where they will be executed or cast out of the city. And we pick up the story right there because that's where we left off. So grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts chapter 16. If you're using one of our Bibles that are under the seats that we provide, we are on page 601, 601. If you brought a smart device or your Bible, go to Acts chapter 16 and we're jumping in in verse 24. Acts chapter 16, verse 24. Now, verse 24 says this. It's the end of the story where we were last week. It says, having received this order, this is the jailer now, the Roman soldier who is tasked to guard these heinous prisoners, Paul and Silas, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. That's where we find ourselves. We pick up with Paul and Silas in the inner prison on a cold concrete floor sitting in a set of stocks. Now this is important because giving us the picture of the stocks gives us a picture of the predicament that Paul and Silas find themselves in. You and I may not know what stocks really are. We hear that, but we're not sure what they are. So I asked one of our friends here at Mosaic to build me a set. So here are a set of stocks, okay? That's what stocks look like right there. Stocks have two holes in them that you get your feet in and then they get locked down and a mechanism locks and you get stuck in these things until such a time that you're pulled out for your execution or your release from the city. So when you get into a pair of stocks, it's extremely awkward and painful. Let me demonstrate, okay? This is a little difficult and I will say I have yet to get into one of these without pinching something really badly. So please bear with me if I scream for a second. Legitimately, I'm not even kidding. So please work. Okay, ow. All right, yes, <laughs> it didn't hurt this time. Okay, so um, you can look on the screen as well also if you'd like, if you're having a hard time seeing me down here, but this is what Paul and Silas were stuck in in the prison lockdown, okay? Now, the only difference though between Paul and Silas and me is a couple of small things. First of all, I'm wearing a nice pair of comfortable clothing. Uh, they had been stripped down and beaten with rods, kicked in the face, and they were bleeding and their body was hurting. They probably had a killer headache because they probably had a minor concussion. When a crowd stands around you and beats you and kicks you, it is not a pretty sight. So they are not only in the stocks, but they are exhausted, they are broken, and they are in trouble. They are also stripped down, and they're not sitting on a comfortable soft carpet on a stage. They are sitting on a cold concrete floor. The other thing you would not know that I know clearly now, because I've done this four times, is that you are not actually sitting on the comfortable part of your body that you are designed to sit on. You are sitting on your tailbone. Have you ever sat on your tailbone for a significant period of time? It gets sore really, really fast, and I can tell you mine is, because I've been sitting in here for a little while. So, But I've got my hands free, so I can at least relieve a little bit of that once in a while by shifting around, except that Paul and Silas wouldn't have had their hands free. Their hands would have been locked into a space up here 
with a chain running from one wall to the other and running through the, the, the locking mechanism on the arms and the arms would have been hanging from a chain like this. So the blood is rushing from the hands, you know when your hands fall asleep. So their hands have fallen asleep, their arms are tingling, their entire body is cramping up, they are in lots of pain, they are bleeding because nobody tended to their wounds, their legs are locked in and they're sitting on their tailbone on a concrete floor stripped down to just about nothing. This is not a happy place, okay? And when we pick up the story in the scriptures, you may look over there in verse 25, it says these words. It says, after, I mean, about midnight, about midnight is when we pick up the story. Now, that gives us a clue as to what's been happening to Paul and Silas. Because about midnight means that they've been sitting in this position that I've been in for about three minutes and I'm really irritated. They've been sitting in this position now for a number of hours. It's likely that they were put into the stock sometime in the midday because this incident would have taken place in the early part of the day, maybe the early part of the afternoon. So we're somewhere between eight and 12 hours sitting in stocks. I am not joking when I say that I, my legs are genuinely hurting right now. Like the muscles in my legs, because you, you can't really keep them up. You can't really set them down. This is a very uncomfortable and awkward position. They've been sitting like this for a number of hours in great pain. And they know this. Here's their options. Option one, they're going to be left in these stocks for days so that the suffering becomes unbearable and so that when they are released from the stocks and told to leave the city, they will never be tempted to return. Do you understand? The idea was lock them down like this, make sure they don't get a bathroom break, feed them just enough to keep them alive, and in a couple of days take them out when they're practically dead and say, if you come back, we kill you. That's option one. Option two is they are released from the stocks the next morning, which is the worst option because that means they're going to be brought out into the city and executed publicly. Sedition is the highest crime in a city like Philippi, so likely that is their scenario. This is where Paul and Silas find themselves. And what does it say they are up to when we engage with them in the story? It says this, about midnight, Paul and Silas, you can read it right there, were praying. Now, I get that part, okay, because I would be praying too. I know what I'd be saying. Some of the words would be nice to God, hopefully that he would solicit something from me, and, or I would solicit something from him, and some of them would be a little mad. They might go back and forth. But I can tell you, at the very least, I'd be begging God for some things, right? At midnight, with my headache throbbing, if I even had the energy to pray, I'd be saying things like, God, I sure hope you're watching. I sure hope you're here. God, if this is what I have to bear to be a missionary for you, I'll bear it and suffer for you, but it'd be helpful if you could undo it quickly. So prayer, that makes sense. But it says more than that, doesn't it? It says Paul and Silas were praying and what? Singing hymns to God and all the prisoners were listening. Now this is an incredible clue to us because in the uncomfortability of this position, in great pain and turmoil, what we find out is that Paul and Silas were not begging God to get out. They were worshiping God for the position they had found themselves in. This is an insanity. You see, we love hearing about these stories, but it's crazy. Nobody does that. When you get yourself in stocks like this and life comes at you hard, you do not find yourself thanking God profusely for the opportunity opportunity to be sitting in some stocks while you're bleeding half to death. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas are doing. They are worshiping God in the midst of an insane scenario. 
And while they are worshiping God, the prisoners are listening in, it says. The world is watching as they are responding to this circumstance with an attitude that can only be called absolutely insane or supernatural. And then something crazy happens. The Scripture says, and a great earthquake occurred. Now, I'm going to get out of these stinking stocks because this earthquake is also going to release Paul and Silas, and so I think it's only fair that I also get released. Uh, So here's the deal. The earthquake occurs. You can read it there, and it says the earthquake shook the very foundations of the prison. The earthquake shakes the foundations of the prison, but more happens than just the shaking. Take a look. Look what it says. It says, and immediately... All the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So what we find out happens is an earthquake occurs at midnight, about midnight. And in this earthquake, as the jail shakes, the doors come unhinged and open. The chain falls from the hands of the prisoners and the stocks break open. At first, you might read that and go, oh my goodness, it's a miraculous earthquake that miraculously smashes all this apart. But that would be a little bit of a stretch. Here's why. Because in Philippi, like California, earthquakes weren't totally uncommon. They weren't daily or, or, or weekly, but they happened on a fairly regular basis, like California. If you lived there for a lifetime, you might have been able to say, were you part of the earthquake of, of 08? Oh yeah, that was a big one, man. What about the, the, you know, the, the 012? Yeah, that was a little shaker. We were under a doorpost. It was cool. We were fine. See, you're telling stories about the earthquakes that have occurred. So the earthquake in of itself is not supernatural. It is a natural occurrence in Philippi. It wouldn't have shocked the world. When an earthquake occurs, that's a particularly big earthquake, it is not unthinkable to think that it shakes places enough that doors fall off hinges, right? That's not a supernatural consequence of an earthquake. An earthquake occurs and doors fall down. We go, yeah, it was a big earthquake. It is also not totally unthinkable to believe that when the earthquake occurred, that the place where the chain was fastened to the two walls holding all the prisoners would have been loosened or come undone, and they would have been able to pull the chain out and release themselves from what held their arms. And, though a bit of a stretch, not totally unthinkable if the earthquake was particularly violent, that maybe every one of the stocks of every one of the prisoners, the locking mechanisms came loose. That's a bit of a stretch, but let's just call it what it is. It is a possibility. You see, the miracle that just took place that you and I were privy to is not the earthquake itself. It's not what the earthquake produces. It is the timing of the earthquake and the sequence of events in sequence that it allows to happen. See, it is kind of crazy that the earthquake happens to happen on the night that Paul and Silas are in the prison, and that it happens to happen at midnight while they are awake, ready, and it happens to shake the prison enough that both the doors fly open and the chains come loose, and it happens to release every one of the stocks that every prisoner's in. I'm just going to say that sequence is miraculous, and those events in their timing are miraculous. Sometimes God affects things for his will in supernatural occurrences, but oftentimes through very natural means, he allows a timing and a sequence that creates a miraculous end, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Paul and Silas are released from their bondage by the timing of an incredible earthquake. Now, if you were in prison and I was in prison in stocks, you and I would be begging for God to release us. 
Then when the earthquake occurred and everything fell off, that's when we would sing hymns to God, right? See, the timing's off on the story. You don't sing hymns to God before the earthquake. You sing hymns to God after the earthquake because that's how we do it. Paul and Silas, they were doing it backwards. They were worshiping God while in bondage. So the big question now is, what on earth do they do with freedom? And that's exciting. So Paul and Silas are released from their bondage. And you and I would say, as they would, this was a supernatural intervention from God to release them. So could you justify that God wants them free? Yes, absolutely. Now there's one thing standing in their way. Right outside this prison that they're in, with the doors now open, there is a Roman soldier who has been tasked with guarding these prisoners. Roman soldiers were a strange breed. They lived for their Romanness. Do you understand? Their greatest honor was to die for Rome. They were the, the consummate soldier. And they didn't have any armor on their back because if you were a Roman soldier and you turned from a fight, you deserved to die. That was their attitude. You fight and you die or you lose your honor. If a Roman soldier ran from a fight, if a Roman soldier lost his prisoner, if a Roman soldier let someone get away, that Roman soldier was stripped of his um, uh, ability to be a soldier and he was cast out of town. And of all the cities on the planet at that time that you did not want to be stripped of your honor, it was the city of Philippi, a Roman colony with a bunch of veterans. And so this soldier knew if these Prisoners escape under my watch. I have lost everything that matters to me. And so what's this guy going to do when you try to get out of the prison? He is trained to kill 10 men at a time with his bare hands, but he also has a sword. These prisoners have been beaten. They're exhausted. They're stiff from sitting in stocks. They have no shot at this. So Paul and Silas cannot leave the prison because the Roman soldier will kill them if they try. Let's take a look at what happens. And it says this. After everyone's bonds were unfastened, verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword. Now you're ready for a fight, right? Except look what it says. And he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. It's dark. The lights are out. They cannot see. He doesn't even bother walking into the prison to see if the prisoners are there. The earthquake shakes. Walls are everywhere. He comes out of the rubble. He looks around. The doors are open. He sees the chain laying on the ground. He sees one of the stocks laying open. And immediately he realizes the prisoners have escaped. And he makes a quick and immediate decision. The kind of decision you would expect from a passionate warrior of Rome. He calculates in that second, if I walk out of this prison without my prisoners, they will strip me of my honor. I will be executed or worse, I will be left to live in shame. I will kill myself now and they will think that I fought bravely to try to keep the prisoners from escaping, but they overcame me. Not super honorable, but at least it's better than the alternative. And so he pulls his sword out, not to walk in the prison, but to kill himself. And if you start thinking, you might say for a second, wow, God is awesome. Because here's this Roman soldier, the great enemy of the people of God. He's going to take him down and God confuses him. He thinks they're already gone and he slaughters himself so that they can walk freely out of the prison. You could preach that. It'd be really scary, but you could. But that's not what happens at all. This is not a David and Goliath story. It's something far bigger far more wondrous. You see what Paul does next is insane and unexpected. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. All the prisoners were still there. They had not fled. You and I, man, let's just be honest. 
earthquakes, supernatural events from God, my freedom. I've been worshiping all night, even though I didn't want to. I'm taking a run for it. Paul's attitude, here's what he does. The soldier's about to kill himself, and Paul immediately stops him and says, don't do it. We're all here. No one's left. The stocks are still in pretty good shape. I'd be happy to sit down. You can lock them back down. Paul understood what that soldier was going to go through. But what's crazy to me is that Paul takes a moment where God supernaturally hands him his freedom and Paul's immediate response to God is, my temporal freedom is not in any way comparable to the opportunity for these other prisoners and that guards eternal freedom. I will lay down my temporal freedom any day of the week if it even has the slightest possibility of affecting the eternal freedom of those around me. And Paul and Silas willingly lay down the supernatural gift of freedom that God's about to give them so that the eternal consequences will be realized. Paul could not have known that the soldier was going to respond well. You see, sometimes we read these stories and we feel like Paul kind of had this like vision. If I say to the the, the guard, we're here, then he will come in and grovel at our feet and beg to be saved and we'll all be fine. Paul didn't know that. Just like we don't know that yet. Paul was risking everything. That soldier, for all intent and purposes, most likely should have come back in, not even thanked the prisoners because he had no view of them as human beings. He thought of them as seditious, horrid people against Rome. And he would have pulled his sword, said, get back in the stocks and locked them down and stood proudly until the police force arrived in the next morning. That's what should have happened. Paul didn't know it was gonna go any other way. But Paul knew this. It matters more to me that I take the opportunity to make the gospel beautiful in this moment than it matters to me to be free. And so he does, and look what happens. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling, he fell, uh, with fear, he fell before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out of the prison and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is an insane story, folks. It's a Roman soldier who just minutes before was willing to slaughter himself despite his wife and kids at home so that he could maintain the honor of being a Roman soldier and after encountering the gospel through two brave men who were willing to lay down their freedoms for the beauty of the gospel, he immediately is awakened and being a Roman soldier means nothing to him anymore. How do we know? Because he takes the prisoners to his house. He's crazy. He takes care of their wounds. He feeds them a meal. In the morning when the police come out and they're searching the prison wall for either a dead soldier or some prisoners, they don't find them, and they search the city, they're going to find Paul and Silas and the other prisoners hanging out at the jailer's house eating some soup. And that is not going to go well for the jailer. He's not going to go, hey, I'm I'm holding them prisoner here at my house. Uh, Yeah, I tended their wounds and fed them, but that was sort of a side note to kind of bribe them to stay. No, it wasn't going to go well for him. This jailer was now locked into losing the reality of who he was. 
God produces a crazy cool story because you read on in the passage and this is what it says happens. The magistrate, the next morning when the police go out, they get to the prison, prisoners are gone. So the magistrate makes a strategic political move. That's what you're seeing here. They go to Paul and Silas, find them probably at the prisoner's house. It must have been a weird moment when the prisoner, I mean the jailer is saying to the police, yeah, and then I came to Jesus and it was unbelievable and I don't really care about being a Roman soldier anymore. I just care about following God in my whole life. Do you wanna know about Jesus? I could tell you, dude, what's happening? So the police go back to the magistrate and the magistrate makes a strategic decision. Let's just secretly get Paul and Silas out of the city. This is getting super weird. The jail is in shambles. All the prisoners are gone. If this word gets back to Rome, they're gonna think we are losing control of our city. They're gonna send the big boys in and we're gonna lose our leadership. So they say, if we can just get Paul and Silas out of the city quickly, we'll be okay. And so they go to Paul and Silas and say, would you mind just leaving really fast? And Paul and Silas do something crazy cool. This is Paul, verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and do they now want to throw us out secretly? No. I love Paul. You know, this is the thing about Paul. Just when you're like, Paul is all like, oh no, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna pull my Roman card. I'm gonna suffer for Jesus. And then the next moment where you, the police are like, would you leave quietly? You expect Paul to kind of go, thank you. And Paul goes, no, I'm not gonna leave quietly. You can escort me out. By the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Did you know that? And did you know that you beat me on, on, uh, without a trial? And did you know you threw me in prison? You know what? I might write, write a letter to one of my friends in Rome. How do you feel about that? And suddenly the magistrates all bent out of shape. Take a look. The police reported these words to the magistrate and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. Paul, we're so sorry. We had no idea. Please next time pull your card. This is really awkward for us. And they said, they took them and, uh, and, and asked them, uh, they took them out and asked them if they would leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So now the magistrate's releasing Paul, and I bet that soldier, uh, they were like, you know what, if you don't talk about it, we won't talk about it, okay? Just keep everything as is. And the story turns out pretty cool. But in the midst of the story, all this awesomeness that turned out, you see, Paul couldn't have known that. He was living in the moment in a very unique and, and, and an unthinkable way. When he was in the stocks because of his missional living, he was worshiping God for the incredible opportunity to be suffering for Christ and have opportunity in spaces he otherwise couldn't. When he was set free supernaturally, he laid down his freedom for the sake of the greater story, his temporal freedom not mattering nearly as much to him as the freedom of those who are watching him and watching the gospel. See, our story's a little different, at least mine is. We also stand like the Truman character at the door of the grand adventure God is calling us into. We also wrestle with leaving behind the scripted life we've written for ourselves and stepping into the unknown missional life God is calling us into. We open that door bravely and many of us, knowing the gospel, having come awake to its beauty and the restored purpose of our lives, step out into that missional life, abandoning our scripted story for the grand adventure of God. And then six weeks in, when it gets really hard and we're overwhelmed and our feet are in stocks, we come running back to the dome, banging on the door going, I want back in. I want the cameras. I want the script. I want everything safe. See, that's the part in the Truman Show you don't get to see. Six weeks later, when he runs back and bangs on the dome, dorm door, and he goes, please, just I want back in. It's dangerous out here. 
Either we bail on missional living because it gets too overwhelming, too difficult. We end up in too many stocks emotionally, mentally, physically, financially because we're giving ourselves away. We're laying ourselves down. Suddenly we realize all those rights and entitlements and freedoms we think were ours because God loves us. We lay them down because God actually engages us in missional living and suddenly it becomes overwhelming. The story's too big for us and we want out. Or, or if we're super spiritual, We don't run back to the dome and bang on the door because we know that wouldn't be the right thing to do. So what we do is we bear the mission of life in misery. Yeah, we live it. We do it. We give our stuff away. We, we, we give our time. We, we take on the emotional stories. We, we get some circumstance we didn't ask for. And we, and we say, oh God, I will bear this reality for your glory. I'm miserable, but I'll bear it because I love you. We don't live in joy We live in misery, a missional life, and, and I would say if you're going to live in the dome, happy or miserable on the missional life, I pick miserable on the missional life, but that's still not what God wants for you and I. He doesn't want us to live miserably on mission. He wants us to transcend the fray, the war zone, while living in it. See, that's what Paul was able to do. Paul seemed, in every story we will find him, to be able to live in the stocks of life and yet worshiping God there. How? Paul seemed to have this uncanny ability in the moment where his freedom was his to take to lay it down without consequence or fear for the sake of others, staying in things that he could get out of because the gospel would be better served staying in than getting out. And we don't do that. How did Paul do it? Well, thankfully, with Paul, we have two gifts from God. We have the book of Acts that gives us the observable realities of Paul. Someone from the outside, Luke, watching Paul's life and writing, then Paul did this, then Paul did this, then Paul did this. But we also have the letters that Paul wrote giving us a glimpse into his inner life, his heart and his mind. We don't only know what Paul did, we know what Paul thought. Because God has given us the letters Paul wrote and he's made those letters revelation to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. What did Paul write? Because you know Paul gave us clues. In fact, not only clues, direct statements about how he lived this insane life. How he tolerated the sufferings that come with missional living and the miracles that come with missional living and constantly laid them back down for the gospel. How his entire focal point was always what is best for the kingdom of God, what is best for the gospel, what is best for the glory of God, not what does Paul need or deserve now. In fact, Much of what he said, though in many letters, is found in the very letter he writes to the people in Philippi a little later on. The very people he's with now, he writes a letter to them later on, the letter of Philippians, and in that letter, he gives them clues as to what they observed while they were around him in Philippi. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of, of, Philipp, uh, of Philippians in your Bibles. It's on page 636 of the Bibles we provide, or if you brought your own, then go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 or page 636. In Philippians chapter 1, Starting in verse 18, or really verse 19, this is what it says. Yes, and I will rejoice, Paul says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's in prison in Rome right now. He's writing the letter from Rome to the people in Philippi, and he's just talking about his life in Rome right now in the future. And then he says this. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that I will be full of courage now as always that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
See, what was going on in Paul's head is that he had concluded rightly that because God had now rescued him, that this life he was living was not about trying to extract as much as he could from God to make his life good. It was actually to live life as much as he could in the story of God to know God more deeply. That if he was suffering with Christ in missional living, that was a means by which he could share more greatly in the redemptive story of God, knowing God more deeply. And if he was experiencing the miracles of God, that was knowing God more deeply. For Paul, everything was bent on this life as now an opportunity to know God and make him known, period. And this is my obsession. He explains that a little further in this very same letter. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 7. So as the Philippian church is reading on, they get to this part. Verse 7 of chapter 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul was not pursuing his salvation. He was pursuing his relationship with Jesus. He was saying, I want to know every bit of what it means to know Jesus. And when I'm in stocks, in a prison, beaten half to death, in that moment I will worship God because two things are true. One, I am knowing Jesus here more. And two, I am in the middle of an opportunity for the gospel to be made beautiful. I'm just waiting on it. This was Paul's obsession, his attitude. Look what he writes in chapter four of this very same letter. Now he gives us a clue as to how he stayed in this space. Because isn't that the big question? How do we stay there? Great, inspiring, lovely, obsessed with these things. How? Look. Paul writes, verse nine, uh, verse eight of chapter four. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. See what Paul's doing? He's saying this, you want to live above the circumstances? You want to live freely in heart and soul, even when your feet are in some stocks emotionally or physically or mentally, even when life's gotten hard because the circumstances feel bigger than you, even when things are trouble, you, you want to do that? Well, then you have got to focus your heart and mind on truth, folks. You got you to press in. You got to live in that truth. You move away from the truth and man you are going to start complaining in the stocks. I was on Facebook on Friday, and Friday, late afternoon, early evening, a particular post hit my news feed that captured my attention. It captured my attention because these are the words that it said. This was the exact post. Some days, I want to just throw in the towel and stop caring and stop trying. I know this too shall pass, but right now my feelings are trumping my truths. My feelings are trumping my truths. That particular post captured my attention for two reasons. One, because it was bravely vulnerable and super wise and clear. 
See, the person that posted that was vulnerable enough to say, here's how I feel, world, and yet wise enough to say, this will pass because I know exactly why I feel this way, because my feelings are trumping my truths. The other reason this particular post captured my attention was because it was posted by my wife. So that was my wife's post Friday afternoon. And I particularly know it to be totally real because Friday when I got home, the kids were all downstairs, all eight of them, and they said, mom's upstairs. And when mom's upstairs and they're downstairs, you know that something's going on. I went upstairs to find her bedroom door locked. That's never a good sign. I knocked for a while and she didn't answer. After a while, I got into the room and I found my wife in the room and these were the words my wife said to me. This Life is too big for me. I don't want to be here anymore. I want, I want out of this story <laughs> because my wife is a secret introvert. She presents as an extrovert, but she's an introvert, and she lives in an extrovert home with lots of noise, and so she is a prisoner in her own home many days, but she knows that this was the story God has written for us, and she's content with that, but there are days that come like this one where she goes, I'm ready to throw in the towel. But in her absolute wisdom and beauty, my wife is able in the same stinking sentence to say, this too shall pass. Because right now the reason I feel this way is because my feelings are trumping my truths. Which equally means the other thing is also possible and true, right? When our truths trump our feelings, then we are free. See, the secret that Paul lays out before us is this. He says it in the book of Colossians when he writes to the church, uh, the Colossian church. He says this in Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you are now in Christ, set your minds on things above and not on things below. In that same paragraph, he ends that by saying, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. Fix yourself on your new identity and live in it. Because the second you divert from the truths, your feelings begin to trump your truths and you will be bound not by the stocks your feet are in, but by the heart that lingers there in that complaining and tragic reality. We will bear the mission miserably if we do not dig deeply into the truths of God. So the more doors you shove open out of your scripted life into the adventure of God, the more it necessitates your and my digging into the truth. And how do we have the truth of God linger with us so absolutely that like Paul, in any circumstance, we can transcend the fray while in the war? Well, I'll tell you. First, we have to discover the truth. We actually have to find it. Guess how you do that? You read this thing. You read it. You spend time with the Word of God. You study it. Oh, God forbid that takes time. You might have to Google a few things. You don't just read and go, I don't understand. You get a commentary. You dig in. You take an hour or two every week, every day maybe, and you discover what God has to say. We call that studying. You used to do it. It's awesome, and when you do it with this, it builds into you a discovery of truth. Well, discovering the truth is all good and fine. It'll linger up here in your head, but how do you absorb that truth? Well, there you have to actually sit quietly. We call that silence. You sit quietly in a quiet space. You take what you've learned and read, and you actually think about it. You actually consider it. You actually wonder about it. You chew on it. We call this silence. We call this meditation. Meditation is chewing on the truth. Silence is absorbing the truth. Study is discovering the truth. What else could you do? 
Well, maybe you want to know where the truth is required in your life. Do some fasting. Fasting reveals where you need the truth. Fast from Facebook for six minutes. See how it feels. (laughs) If you're panicking, push for 10. If you go a day, freedom will come. And so we fast from things because it reveals where we are captivated by things that don't belong. Maybe you need to celebrate the truth. That's worship. We come together in a space like this to do what? To worship, to be inspired by God's word. Why? To celebrate the truth. FYI, you are not currently studying just because you're sitting here. That's not called study. I did the study. You're just listening, okay? So that doesn't count. This is celebrating the truth. This isn't studying the truth. If you want to study the truth, you've got to go work at it. That's where you discover. Maybe you, want to, maybe you want to really embrace the truth. You know how you embrace truth? You go pray. Do you know that prayer isn't actually exclusively for you to beg God for stuff? Who knew? Prayer is actually a space where you get to engage in truth, where you get to come and dialogue with your father about the truths you're discovering and say, God, what does this mean? Where do I step in? How does this, how do I engage? We call this the devotional life. Solitude is being with the truth regularly. See, you and I are so busy with our minds fixed on things below, so busy trying to get through the day, so busy scripting our little life for ourselves, you and I that we do not press into truth, we do not linger with truth, we do not absorb truth, we do not celebrate truth, we do not stay with truth. No wonder the second we burst out of the door of this life that we've scripted for ourselves into the grand adventure of God, we panic and run back. Or we live in misery there in the stocks because guys, life on mission gets hard. That was not a suggestion, it was a promise. Jesus said, I promise you this, if you follow me, it's gonna get hard at times. It's not going to be easy. But that should not change anything because Paul told us clearly, it is not a change of your circumstances that will set you free. It is a captivating reality of truth that will set you free. You know, Jesus said that. John chapter 8, he's talking to some Jewish guys that had come to believe in him. And listen to what he says. This is an incredible statement. John chapter 8, verse 31. Look at, listen to this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. So this is to believers, to people that know Jesus. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Brooke scripted a life. She did. I remember when I first met her almost 20 years ago, she was going to have two kids, one and a half, maybe two, I don't know, two, uh, because with two kids, you can kind of get to know each of them deeply. Maybe you get a boy and a girl. That'll be fun. One princess, one warrior. And then you can just kind of work your, and you can manage that well. And if they fight, you can give them each something to do. And, and there was going to be a house and it was going to be a decent house with a white picket fence maybe and a decent car in the driveway and maybe a part-time job where she could be home and at work, significant and there. And then she was going to have a husband that did the dishes every day and that was going to be awesome. And maybe her husband would be a pastor like me and, and then we would have a, nice little church, just big enough to pay the bills, just small enough never to get messy. And, 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 and we just live our lives out and it would be beautiful and we would be serving God. And then God wrote this crazy story for us. That poor woman has planted churches and started businesses alongside me and uh, accidentally birthed several children that were not part of the two that we planned. Um, and then we adopted a bunch as well. That was really not part of the scripted plan. And every time God seems to get us at a door, we want to push out and the enemy says, it's dangerous. Stay with me. I will keep you safe. Brooke and I walk out into that world. 
But I'll tell you, when we walk out into that world and it gets rough and tough and difficult and emotionally we end up in some stocks with our hands up bleeding and we're like, this is exhausting, my tailbone hurts. You want to say, I want to throw in the towel. And what Brooke and I are continually realizing is that the more times you shove a door open out of that dome in which you're scripting for yourself and walk out daringly into the adventures of God, the more you will need to press into the truth. Because the only thing that will keep you free on mission is not circumstances, but truth. And truth that lingers, memorize it, store it away. There's another one. You know what we call these things? Study, fasting, memorization, you know, solitude, silence. We call them disciplines of the faith. They're a gift to us by which we can enter into the space where truth is absorbed. They're not another work. They're not another checklist. Check silence. Check study. They are an opportunity for you and I to engage deeply in absorbing the truths that will keep us free so that we will live on mission in joy, not in misery, and that we will not bail on it when we end up in some stocks because we're taken on the darkness. This is the adventure we are invited to. This is why we're following these guys in Acts, and this is what God is waiting for you and I to step into. Dare to trust God's story over your own. The world is watching folks with bated breath, and when we dare, they cheer even though they're not sure what on earth we just did. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the grand invitation by your good news, the gospel, that we are not only set free so that we can live a better life and get to go to heaven when we die, but we are actually set free so that we can lay down our small stories to engage in your big one, so that we can relinquish our freedoms so that others might be eternally free, that we can tolerate our sufferings because they are opportunities for us to make known the contentment in which we can live in you. May we, as we press harder into the missional life, also find ourselves taking far more seriously than ever the devotional life of pressing harder into you. May we spend the time, make the time, take the time to discover truth and study, to celebrate it in worship, to absorb it in solitude, silence, and meditation, to engage in it in prayer, to celebrate it, to live in it, to memorize it and store it so that we are ever captivated by this truth of your gospel. May we preach the truth to ourselves every day before we preach it to anyone else so that our actions and words may represent your redemption and love before we walk out there into the world trying to live on mission empty. Would you allow truth to become so ever-present for us that daily our truths trump our feelings instead of our feelings trumping our truths so that we might sustain mission and find great joy in it, worshiping you even as we sit in the stocks of life because we are giving ourselves to your story. God, thank you for allowing us to participate in what you are doing on this planet. May we never run back to our little dome and hide in our own scripted stories. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.